is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. Welcome to what I am calling season two of the WTF Bach Podcast. I am Evan Schinners. WTF Bach. Season one covered in depth one of Bach's late magnum opuses, The Art of Fugue. We had several special guests, a few bonus episodes. But what will be the big opus of this season? Well, nothing. That is, I don't want to make this season a series of cumulative episodes. It's true that if you tuned into, say, Fugue 7 from The Art of Fugue last season, I tried to make everything as accessible as possible from any point. But as the art of fugue is designed as a collection of fugues that build in complexity on itself, the best way to really listen to that season is from the very first episode. So here in season two, I'm going to keep my focus on any piece either you, the listener, suggest, or on any piece that strikes my fancy. And now, the big news. I'm making this episode in haste because I have an important announcement. I'm opening the Bach store in Germany, in the town of Erfurt, the capital city of Thüringen, or Thuringia, as we say in English, from March 25th to April 8th. I'll be installing myself a piano, a harpsichord, and Bach-related merchandise in an empty storefront and performing five hours a day from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. what I am calling the pretty damn near-complete works of Bach. I'll admit... I am missing the two Reinken sonatas. I'm on the fence about playing the E major capriccio, and there are two preludes, one in D minor, one in A major, that require a pedal keyboard. Other than those four BWVs, I welcome your suggestions. Anything from the entire keyboard repertoire, I got it in my fingers. I'm ready for you to come into the store and request a BWV, and I'll play it for you. The entrance is free, there are special guests in the evenings, and the merchandise is, well, if you love Bach, it's the most essential merchandise you could possibly imagine. That's the Bach store. I assume if you've heard of me, you've heard of the Bach store, but if not, here you are. I'll be streaming every day so you can listen, you can watch. If you're not in Germany, I'll be streaming on Twitch, T-W-I-T-C-H, at twitch.tv slash WTF underscore Bach. I'm going to make that the first link in the episode description so you can watch between March 25th and April 8th. But now, let's analyze some Bach. What will be the first piece I will discuss in season two? It's going to be a fugue. It's a fugue that Bach loved. It's a fugue, in fact, he loved so much he wrote it out three times. Now, what fugue could that be other than the fugue in G minor for solo violin, BWB 1001? Now, when I say he wrote it three times, that's because we have transcriptions of it for organ and for lute or lute harpsichord. I'll delve into each of these, but first, the backstory of this fugue for solo violin. Around 1720, Bach had completed what he called se solo, or six solo, for violin without bass accompaniment. This means that these works are for violin alone, no continuo playing along. No one figuring out the figured bass while this violin plays along. This is just six pieces for solo violin, the violinist standing in a completely empty room. Think of the power of just that. Libro primo, he adds. Libro primo, he writes on the manuscript. And this designation as libro primo most likely refers to the fact that the cello suites composed around the same time would have been libro secundo. But since we lack the autograph, we lack actually Bach's own handwriting copy of the cello suites, 
We may never know if indeed the cello suites are libro secundo, but that's a pretty safe bet. Now, whenever Bach does anything, especially in a large collected format, whenever he makes a collection of six partitas, of 24 plates and fugues, of the art of fugue, he makes sure that he's got the entire dictionary there, the entire encyclopedia. So how does Bach open up this particular volume of knowledge? He doesn't open it with this fugue that we're going to discuss. In fact, he prefaces it with an adagio. And I like to think of this adagio in particular, but almost any adagio that precedes a big fugue as sort of like an invocation of the muses. You know, in Homer, uh, the Iliad or the Odyssey, and he says, oh, muses, help me because I am about to sing this song. And then he starts singing. Or in Indian classical music, and correct me if I've got these terms wrong, we've got the raga before the tala. That's, we, you know, we've got this singing, all the scales sort of exploring the scales, sort of exploring what the color of everything will be. And then, boom, the tabla hits, and you've got this really rhythmic music. And I, it's very similar, I mean, between the adagio and fugue and the Indian classical music. This music that Bach writes in this adagio is almost calling down the spirits to aid him in his quest to fugue. The first chord, you've got to imagine, this is how he's going to open up his set of six pieces for the violin, which are going to do everything that's possible on the violin, everything that you could conceive on the violin, and it's going to, by the way, define violin technique well into the future. The first chord, G minor, plums the depths of the instrument, because indeed the open note G on the bottom of the violin is the lowest note. So let's hear Bach invoke the muse. Here's Nathan Milstein. Sorry about that. That is Heinrich Schering. Let me get you Nathan Milstein. That's the first phrase, and you can see that is very different music from what we're used to hearing on this podcast. You know, that is very slow. That is really like Arms and the Man I Sing or Rage of Achilles. I'm Let's hear, just for comparison's sake, and just to show you that Bach indeed is a lifelong venture, the same performer, Nathan Milstein, but 20 years later, or 18 years later, that was 1957 we heard, let's hear 1975. Same piece, same performer. feels harsh to just keep cutting off the piece like this. It goes on in similar adagio style for a few minutes, and then there is the fugue. And as there was the tradition by Bach himself, we know from his biographer, of playing these specific works for string instruments on the harpsichord, here we have now Robert Hill playing the same adagio on a lute harpsichord.
That is not the whole piece. You'll have noticed it was in a different key, but that is the tradition when transcribing a violin work for the keyboard to change the key. Here is still the violin, Nathan Milstein, 1957, the same amount of music that Robert Hill just played. Now you should have some idea of what this adagio is. I won't play it in full, but I'll put the links in the episode description to hear these recordings. Let's hear the end of the adagio, Milstein now in 1975, going into the fugue. That is the end of the exposition of this violin fugue. He goes into these wonderful, wonderful episodes. We'll hear all of the episodes, but let's just hear that first same exposition now on the organ. Here's Helmut Valcha playing in D minor, and there will be more voices since you can add more voices on the organ. there begin the episodes in the organ version. It's the same fugue as we hear. We have... This is the subject, and it is answered. It's a very brief, concise subject. And the answer in the lower voice. Now in a high voice, voice three. Another voice there, this one. Is this... Uh, 
the third voice again. Is this a fourth voice? Hard to say. With polyphonic violin playing, you know, it's hard to count how many voices there are. Since there are only four strings on the violin, that means you only have four notes maximum you could play at a time, considering... And then we have the episodes. Okay, now in the organ version, it's more explicit how many voices there are. We're in D minor now. Subject and answer. Third voice. We're able to hold these notes because we're playing the organ, not violin. Now this is definitely a fourth voice up top and a fifth voice in the pedals down here. the episodes start. So that's pretty remarkable. It shows us that what Bach composes for this small instrument, the violin, is just one view of this musical gem that he has in his mind, and it is more fully realized on the organ. Could perhaps it be more fully realized still by a large orchestra or whatever? I mean, it means that when Bach composes, he's not limiting himself to the instrument. The composition is always beyond the means of execution. Let's hear Milstein continue with the episodes in the fugue. And we're hearing the return of the theme there. So that was the first episode, this single line, mostly a single line. And think about all the music Bach squeezes out of one line. Then repeat, lower. And then we have theme-like material. the theme. Way up top there. I mean, this this descending line in one of the middle voices. This is absolutely wonderful. Now, what will this same episode sound like in the organ version? And there we hear the theme returning also up high. It's the same music, but very differently arranged. The main difference to me is, I suppose, we no longer have a single line. We now have polyphony accompanied in the left hand and in the pedal. some of those notes wrong, but you know, this line that I made such a fuss of in the violin version here is now accompanied in sixth with the left hand. 
okay, what about this lute version? Well, it's a it's an interesting version. It's the same fugue. It's in G minor, again, like the violin version. It's down an octave instead of here. It's actually two bars longer than the organ and the violin version, which is pretty odd considering the transcriptions of Bach. The official, I suppose, terminology from the Neue Bach Ausgabe, the new Bach edition, says that there are trademarks of the arrangement which lend itself to authenticity. But we can hear how he arranges this. Still in G minor, subject and answer. He has these grace notes. are pretty unique. And then as you could see, we're in the episodes, but this is unique to the lute version. So here we have three different versions of the same fugue, and yet it goes basically into the same episode. Okay, let's continue with the violin version after the return of the theme up here. that I could say about this music would be in vain. I'm going to try not to say much about it, but we have, of course, going down from the top until we get down quite low to the bottom. Unbelievable sigh upon sigh. (laughs) 
and you hear Milstein playing. He's incapable of playing what is written. I don't mean he, I mean the violinist is incapable of playing like this. Because they have to separate it. The bow can't reach these strings in such a way. But what is written in the score is this. But I wonder what it would sound like on the organ if we were to play it from sigh upon sigh section. I don't know if you heard that, but that was pretty remarkable. You did not have that. Instead, that music is so important for Bach that he, instead of going, he transforms it into something like this. So instead of playing, he really fleshes it out. And then this. Pretty interesting. We have a D natural here. And then this. 32nd note with D sharp and then instead of we again we have this spinning figure and now the organ is actually capable of sustaining these notes so we don't have to have this choppy but we can have these big organ chords okay let's hear those two back to back in the two different keys keep in mind That's what I mean by a pedal point. In theory, we have what is called the compositional pedal point in this violin, because we have this D here, and the violinist will repetitively strike it 
and it is an open D string, so it just sits there vibrating. But as far as a pedal, I mean, that's really what happens. Helmut puts down his foot. And just sits there with his, probably his left foot on the keyboard. I'll play it with a synthetic bass tone added to this. to the episode. Okay, let's hear what that sounds like when a lute player plays it. Narisko Yapes or Narisko Yepef. I'm not exactly sure how to say the name of the Spanish guitarist, lute player from the middle, late half of the last century. And you could see that when he was playing this, he had to sort of pluck that D there. to get the same effect of what the organist had. And then there is this other pedal point here, which is, I guess, not quite a pedal point, but this one. I exaggerate the slurs there to get that wild line across. In the organ version, that same line is this, in D minor, of course. Now, when we're looking at a fugue by Bach, we know that often in the golden section, that is the concept of phi, the Greek letter, the irrational number, 0.618, blah, 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 blah. Look it up if you are not familiar with it. It's the golden section. It's the number that we humans, we natural things of this world are very attracted to. I did an episode on it last season. But what happens in the golden section of this piece? Well, in the violin version, we have a very interesting thing. For the first time, we're playing upon all four strings. And we're playing in four strings in the relative major of G minor, which is just incredible. And in the organ version, we're going to hear what happens. Listen to the pedals in the organ version. Okay. 
Okay, that was a bit unclear because of the giant cathedral that Helmut is playing in, but essentially Bach took this. And he transposed it into something where the pedals are going Imagine you have to play right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, all the way to the bottom of the pedal keyboard while you're playing this. So these chords, we have this one. So we have something like this. I mean, this, this is Bach's thinking. He thinks, golden section, what can I do with this instrument? Well, I'll play on all four strings at the same time. And what can I do with the organ? Well, I could have the organist nimbly leaping across the entire entire pedal board while landing on this chord. It's just absolutely unbelievable. Now I'll switch back to the violin version to show you how absolutely beautifully he steps out of this intense golden section. steps down here in the bass voice to the bottom open G string and then we go into what is surely the last episode and just the writing there is absolutely beautiful Beautiful is the organ version of the same passage. Let me try and hack it. So instead of this, something a little bit more varied. So instead of going down and then up, he first, Bach in the same episode goes up, down. And instead of this, in the violin, he adds this extra excitement in the organ. Let's hear the violin. chromatic descent
and then we sort of have essentially the fugue coming to an end. But this pedal point here, time stands still. And this D down here, just sitting here, boom, just keeping, keeping time, I suppose, in this timeless world. This is the D string of the violin just vibrating freely. This is how you knew Bach knew how to play and write for the violin. Now this would just stay down here. And the whole wood of the mechanism would be vibrating. Let's hear the organ version, same passage. goes again screaming harmonically into the next universe. Now here's the lute, same passage. three different versions and yet each version is a little more suited to the particular instrument it's like he sands off a corner there he just shaves off an edge there and he makes it really suitable to whichever instrument to whichever ergonomic of the hand or the resonance of the cathedral of the resonance of the box that is the violin this is really an unlimited potential that this man has to create acoustic masterpieces one final passage i want to point your attention to is this It's the penultimate flourish, I guess you could call it, before this. It would, which is definitely the ultimate flourish. It's a chromatic step, down step, down step, down step. It is unaccompanied in both the lute and the violin versions, but in the organ version, transposed, we have it accompanied with the contrasting upward scale. Also interesting of note. Is the third. How do you call it? The Picardy third. Wow, I almost forgot who Picardy was. It's the Picardy third at the end of the organ version, which is not so in the violin version or the lute version. Yes, it's minor in the lute version and in the violin version. I believe it's just the empty. No, it's minor as well. Right. Now, I'm going to do the announcements now before I let you hear Reitze Smith play this fugue on a Baroque organ, and I will put the Milstein and the Yip in the episode description, as well as probably start a new playlist for season two of this podcast. I need you to be patrons on Patreon. I need you to follow me on Instagram to keep this podcast going. I had a lot of 
wonderful support the first season, but I want to do this as frequently as possible and take on all your suggestions. So patreon.com slash WTF Bach, send a donation, venmo.com, not venmo.com, you know, on Venmo at WTF Bach, PayPal. You can find all the info in the episode description. Thanks very much for listening. Here's Wright to Smiths. I hope to be back next month because I'll be playing the Brandenburg Fifth Concerto in New York City. And I want to talk about the fantastic cadenza that is at the end of the first movement of the Fifth Brandenburg Concerto. Thanks for listening. Everybody wait. It's Bach's birthday, March 21st. I know sometimes people celebrate it on March 31st, but traditionally it was celebrated on March 31st. March 21st is still the early music day in Europe. Happy birthday, JSB. And now let's hear Rights of Smiths with this fugue. Thank you very much. We're opening season two on Box B Day.